0: I'm currently nearing the end of a four-part sermon series on our UU sixth principle, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. I've been inviting us to reflect on some of the angles that we would need to consider as a species if we were to ever actually get serious about that goal. I began with a sermon on the artificial intelligence of the near future titled, Immigrants Aren't Coming for Your Jobs, Robots Are. Last Sunday, I preached about the human rights movement, which promotes the idea that all human beings, even increasing numbers of us, deserve at least the minimum conditions for a dignified life. And this Sunday, our focus is on world population, particularly the fact that the number of human beings on this planet has septupled, it's increased sevenfold in a mere two centuries from approximately a billion people around 1800 to more than 7.6 billion people today. Those statistics on the front of your order of service are from 2016, so that's why it says 7.5 billion. I should also be sure to mention here at the beginning that we need to pay attention not only to the number of people alive at any given time, but also to related demographic trends. For instance, we've passed the midpoint of three significant shifts that have never previously been the case in the history of humankind. One is that before the year 2000, young people had always outnumbered old people. From 2000 forward, old people have, will outnumber young people for the foreseeable future. I'm, this is a direct quote. So, uh, to oversimplify, part of what that statistic is tracking is that all persons under 15 and those 65 and older very roughly are likely, likely to be in some sense dependent on the population of the working age of 15 to 64. Second, until approximately 2007, rural people always outnumbered urban people. From 2008 forward, urban people will outnumber, at least as far as we can see, rural people. Third, from 2003 on, the median woman worldwide had and will continue to have too few or just enough children during her lifetime to replace herself and the father in the following generation. These are among the important trends to keep in mind as we seek to build the world we dream about to turn our dreams into deeds. To create a more sustainable world, another trend that I hope increasing numbers of people will um, popularize, it's not winning right now, but I hope it will start to win more, is the need for a triple bottom line that accounts for people, planet, and profit, not merely profit alone as the bottom line. My first two sermons in this series on the rise of robots and on human rights have been more about the ways that that bottom line of profit alone often exploits human labor. But since today is Earth Day, it's only fair that we consider the related importance of the environment in that triple formulation of people, planet, and profit. And whenever I reflect on the relationship of people and planet, I'm often reminded of a New Yorker cartoon that was first published more than a decade ago. It shows a view from space and an anthropomorphized Earth that is an Earth depicted looking human-like, having a face, uh, two ears, uh, two eyes, and a mouth. And Earth, this anthropomorphized Earth with a face, is looking up at the planet Saturn, who, in addition to a ring, has a little doctor's, uh, has been adjusted to have kind of a doctor's um, mirror, head mirror. Uh, The caption has Dr. Saturn diagnosing the problem of the ailing Earth. Dr. Saturn says, I'm afraid you have humans. (laughs) This cartoon satire visualizes a warning first made years ago by the late Julian Huxley, a British evolutionary biologist who said that man will turn into a cancer on this planet. Now that's a harsh evaluation, but the uh, if you consider the upward slope of the population size in the graph printed in your order of service under the sermon title, uh, this now marks the dubious honor of me having two exponentially increasing line graphs in an order of service in less than a month. Uh, But if you pay attention to that sloping line of population size, you'll see that to Dr. Huxley, that increase in human population, it began to look like metastasizing cells threatening to overtake a vulnerable host, which in this case, the host is this planet on which we find ourselves. Have any of you been watching um, Planet Earth 2 on Netflix? It's pretty incredible. Or some of you may have seen Planet Earth 1 the first time around. Uh, uh, but our collective actions have put this incredible planet that we find ourselves on in jeopardy. So I'd like to invite you to consider that as important as each part of that triple bottom line is, none are singularly important. More humans without end is not an unalloyed good any more than the planet alone without humans is desirable or profit alone is desirable for just a well, just a few wealthy elites. Now, in raising the topic of world population, I realize that I'm steering into dangerous territory that is littered with the historic landmines of colonialism, of racism, of eugenics, and more. And I certainly agree that any proposal regarding human population must account for those deeply misguided tragedies of the past. But with that in mind, I invite you to stick with me. Let me get a few more points on the table. Uh, One of the reasons I'm grateful to be a UU is that we have a tradition of trying, not always successfully, to confront difficult topics as reasonable, compassionate adults. So allow me to clarify that when I say that more humans without end is not an unalloyed good, I am primarily responding to the theologically conservative worldview that I was raised in and that continues to shape far too much political policy today, at least in my opinion. In contrast to a triple bottom line that, again, calls us to account for people, planet, and profit, many conservative theologies say that more people is always better. Uh, If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google the quiverful movement um, later. Uh, More people is always better and that it is a sin to use contraception um, designed to prevent a sacred human soul from being born. Uh, Conservative theology also tends to emphasize that how we treat the the planet doesn't matter because God is going to magically create a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, Also more profit is always better. Indeed prosperity is a sign of divine blessing and poverty is due to a lack of faith. If you have not That seems, like, unrealistic to you. Uh, Stay home one Sunday or or TiVo, um, you know, television ministries, because that is what almost all of them say is what's called the prosperity gospel. And for what it's worth, my intention over the past minute is actually not, in my judgment, unduly flippant. I have heard these exact sentiments expressed many times, sometimes in pretty much the exact words I just said them in. The ethicist who I've found most helpful on this point of how we might think differently is the Princeton University professor, Peter Singer. He has written about, quote, unsanctifying human life. Part of what he means by this provocative formulation is that it is arguably no longer reasonable to maintain the ancient religious worldview that all human life is sacred and invaluable from womb to tomb. Without exception, an extreme version of this ancient religious worldview has made it difficult to have a reasonable public debate and to set reasonable public policy regarding both reproductive justice and options for death with dignity for those who want them. In contrast, here in the early 21st century, our invitation is to embrace the reality that we humans are not unique children of God, formed through a special act of creation 6,000 years ago and rightful lords over both this planet and the other life forms on it. Instead, we live more than 150 years after Darwin's discovery that we humans are not a little lower than the angels, we are a little higher than the apes, uh, allegedly. We are the result of millions of years of evolution and we are deeply interconnected with the other life forms and ecosystems of this planet. As I've been researching this subject, the best contemporary book I've found so far is titled Fatal Misconception, the Struggle to Control a World Population. It's by a scholar named Matthew Connolly, published in 2009 with Harvard University Press. Perhaps my most significant takeaway from his historical study is that attempts to curb world population have often been not only ineffective, even when highly funded, but also racist, imperialist, and manipulative. In Connolly's words, the great tragedy of of population control, the fatal misconception, was to think that one could know other people's interests better than they knew it themselves. As the disability rights movement often insists, nothing about us without us. Allow us to be, you know, the people you're trying to control, allow them to be part of the solution from uh, on that point from discussions and debates i've witnessed one frequent um confusion that sometimes keeps this topic of global population taboo is a category confusion of taking the problem and the discussion of it personally when we really need to be needing to talk on the institutional level of systems and structures The issue is orders of magnitude larger than whether any given person has no children or 20 children. Systemic change will come, if at all, by addressing systemic issues. And for those of us committed to reproductive justice, arguably the strongest and most most ethical starting point is to move away from the paradigm of population control, which is a sordid history of racism imperialism and paternalism, to a paradigm of empowerment and equality, most especially for girls and women. Systemic change should arguably include universal worldwide access to comprehensive sexuality education, birth control and childcare, as well as equal educational and employment opportunities for girls and women. Indeed if you consider the population increment bar graph so notice that chart in your order of service it has both a line graph showing the spike in population increase as well as a bar graph that shows that we've actually already peaked in the increment that the population is increasing every year so you'll see both those things on that chart. Uh, the worldwide decline in fertility rates shown in that bar graph c- corresponds far more closely to the worldwide decline in illiteracy among women than with population control programs. So it pretty much maps, the decline in population pretty much rap- maps right onto literacy for women. So that's some of the good news. We know how to create positive change, educate, employ, and empower women. And the world population is not predicted to just keep growing forever. Those are two points of good news. The annual rate of growth again has peaked and is predicted to continue slowing down. The bad news is that the interest in world population has slowed along with it. There has been no United Nations conference on population since Cairo in 1994, and spending per capita on family planning programs has diminished considerably. In most parts of the world, it's diminished by 50% in the decade from 1996 to 2006, which is right around the time that rate began to decline. It's like, all right, guess the problem's fixed. Uh, The United Nations' median projection for global population, so there's the median and then there's the high end and the low end, is that it will peak around 10 billion. But is it wise to accept 10 billion people in global population as the new normal? After all, a mere 150,000 years ago, there were about one million, not billion, just, you know, uh, one million humans alive on planet Earth. And whereas our semi-nomadic hunter-gatherer ancestors had a relatively negligible impact on this planet, especially since the 19th century industrial revolution, the high-impact consumerist lifestyle of increasing numbers of humans is causing climate change at an unprecedented level. Indeed, we may be hurtling toward a potential sixth extinction here on Earth. We know there have been five previous mass extinctions on this planet, and we ignore the possibilities of a sixth one only at our peril, or the peril of our grandchildren, as you spoke about so powerfully earlier, Kathleen. Uh, Climate change deniers may feel like only people and profit matter, but the contemporary environmental um, prophet Wendell Berry puts it this way. Whether we and our politicians know it or not, whether we're willing to admit it or not, nature is party to all of our deals and decisions. She has more votes, a longer memory, and a sterner sense of justice. People and planets, we're in this together. And as we consider how we humans might decrease our impact on this planet, there are a few additional factors to keep in mind. I should be sure, for example, to emphasize that the equation is not a simple division problem, if you, as it's sometimes depicted. So if you think back to basic math, the numerator on top, the denominator on bottom, our situation is not so simplistic as a numerator of fixed planetary resources divided by a denominator of an increasing number of people. Uh, if it were that simple, then standards of living would decrease in direct proportion to increases in population, but techno-utopians who think that technology will save us remind us that over the past few centuries the human capacity to innovate has in many surprising ways been able to keep pace with increasing numbers of new mouths to feed. That's a way of saying that Malthus wasn't totally right. Those of you who know that Thomas Malthus, you know, back with the Industrial Revolution, said we're going to have this iron law of population and people are just going to be starving. Well, the Industrial Revolution happened. Uh, The problem is that may have been a unique solution that may not be sustainable. But techno-utopians hope that the technologies of the future will save us from both poverty and climate change. I've shared some details about those hopes before. You can go back and look in our sermon archives. It was a sermon titled, The Earth Challenge. From the opposite perspective, techno-utopians sometimes fail to account for the ways that technological advances not only increase standards of living, but also have heavy impacts on this planet. Economists call this an externality, trying to refusing to factor in the environmental impact. It is up to us to elect politicians with the courage to force corporations to internalize the environmental responsibility uh, instead of just taking the profit and exploiting the earth. Here's another way of making this point. Not all 7.6 billion of us human beings alive today impact the planet at the same level. The question is not only the average birth rate of a given society, but also what size houses will those children live in? Will they have air conditioning? Will they drive a car? How often are they going to fly in an airplane, etc.? Each new person living a so-called Western, Western consumerist lifestyle, and the thing is that consumerist lifestyle is going to be increasingly less Western and more global, uh, will have a much greater impact on the planet than a billion more subsistence farmers, for example, with multiple generations living together under one roof. How many of you have used the um, online ecological footprint calculator? If any of you played around with that, alright, I see a few hands. You can Google ecological footprint calculator later if you'd like. It's a fascinating, if sobering, interactive website created by a team of scientists that invites you to explore how many Earths would it take if everyone were to live my lifestyle. So you endpoint, you know, about 10 questions and it, it tells you. In the spirit of full disclosure, I've been a vegetarian and occasional vegan since 96. I live in an 1100 square foot row house. I commute 7.5 miles to work and I fly in an airplane at least a few hours a year. Along with a few other data points, that means there would need to be at least two Earths for all 7.6 billion people to live my lifestyle. For a few points of comparison, it would take five Earths for everyone to live the lifestyle of the average American. 3.2 Earths for everyone to live the lifestyle of the average German, and about two Earths for the lifestyle of the average citizens of China, South Africa, or Brazil. These are important perspectives to wrestle with if we're to have any hope of achieving our goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, not merely for some. For anyone curious, I did keep playing with my stats to see what it would take to get to one Earth, uh, one way to get there would be for me to attain at least 80% of my food locally, get rid of my car, and stop flying anywhere by airplane ever, most of which is not realistic, um, or I don't consider it realistic, right, uh, given the current logistics of how Frederick is set up. These things that are not conceivable today may become realistic as climate change uh, ramps up. The overall challenge, of course, just increases if 2.4 billion more people are added to uh, the total global population. Now, I don't want to be unduly harsh on our species from one perspective. We humans are amazing. Uh, We are the products of an evolutionary process, and we have evolved to have the capacity to have a metacognitive awareness of the evolutionary process itself, which the other life forms on this planet do not have. Uh, as the the and the strong evolutionary impulse to reproduce is why any of us are here at all, uh, but for a confluence of reasons, the domestication of fire, the increasingly sophisticated communication potential of our human language, uh, for those and other related reasons, Homo sapiens jumped to the top of the food chain with surprising speed from an evolutionary perspective. So although uh, we must still contend with factors like war and disease and natural disasters, it's also true that our species for a while now has been multiplying rapidly with um, basically no natural predators to thin our herd, so to speak, uh, and keep the ecosystem in balance. And although that's part of what climate change is ultimately threatening to do, right? Thin our herd. But for quite a while now the planet may take care of that if for us if we don't take care of it. But for quite a while now people and profit have been rocketing upward while attempting to count most of the planet planetary impact as an externality. So may we each do our part on this Earth Day and beyond individually and collectively within our spheres of influence to co-create a sustainable future. Not only for all human beings alive today, but for future generations to come, as well as the multitude of astounding life that is on this beautiful, breathtaking planet that we call home. In that spirit, let's rise, embody your spirit, and sing together hymn 1064, Blue Boat Home. I One, I know we're right at time. One quick story. Uh, and When I was first really starting to struggle with these issues in college, I remember having a discussion with someone about access to contraception, and they sort of retorted with, oh, would, people should just use the rhythm method. And, and then I realized they were serious, so it continued with me sort of, and I was like, oh, wait, <laughs> I just offended you. All right. Uh, and the, uh, and then as the, conversation continued um the part of what they were arguing is that you know it's looking like population is declining in europe so because you know the old joke about what you call people who practice the rhythm method right parents right uh so um you were saying well that would actually be fine if it's not a totally foolproof method because you know populate and then i really but i was like you know there are other ways to have the population increase in europe other way other than failing contraception immigration for example, which can also help tie the world more together and all of that, then I realized Oh wait, you mean white Christian populations are declining? I was like, oh, okay, so you're racist. Though good, so we cleared that up. Uh, and and just no, just notice. I just invite you to just be aware that there's often these shadows under these under these conversations around population control. And so these are really large systemic issues. They're deeply personal, of course, as all issues of reproductive justice are. But so the invitation, even as we work on the systemic level, is to be aware of how we're interacting day to day with others and we encounter. So I invite you to on this earth. and beyond. Continue your journey in love. Care for one another. Care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.